a, a lovely welcome and it's absolutely wonderful to be back in Dublin. I take every opportunity to come to this um, city, such fantastic accumulation of libraries and learning and scholarship and um, culture. And um, it's very kind of you to invite me to the first um, of your, what appears to be your winter series of lectures on a very kind of wet and cold day, but um, I'm going to hopefully keep you warm by whizzing through um, a series of slides about my institution, um, a little bit about its history, about our collections, and then sort of more towards the um, second half of my talk about um, the impact of digital, both in terms of how, what we collect, but in terms of the um, expectations of our users um, and then about the role of libraries and archives in particular um, at this moment in history which I think is a very interesting and challenging and exciting place to be. So our story in the Bodleian in the University of Oxford begins um, in the early 17th century with this man Sir Thomas Bodley he's the person we go back to as the kind of well of history and um, inspiration for um, the, the principles upon which our library was founded. And um, part, a key part of that was as a, an institution to preserve knowledge, particularly after Oxford's medieval library had been ransacked during the Reformation of the 16th century and all of the university's collections, or most of them, had been lost. And he came along and refounded the central research library of the university. So preservation is absolutely key. Um, serving scholars is absolutely key. Um, but in particular, he established um, our institution for what he called the whole republic of the learned. And of course, you know, the idea of the public um, at that time was very specific. And, but we've been able to reinterpret, go back to that founding principle and reinterpret that in a digital age as being much, much more broader than he would have um, recognised it in the 17th century. Um, but he's not around anymore, so we can do that. So um, we'll come back to that point. But the, I think the other um, interesting point about Sir Thomas is that he founded um, us um, on his own philanthropy. And he was able to do that because he did a very, very clever thing, which was to marry a rich widow. And um, he was able then to pour some of that, in fact, pretty much all of that money into sort of re-establishing the infrastructure of the library and endowing my post. I'm the 25th person to hold it, but um, uh, the first person, a man called Thomas James, had his post endowed and the post of Bodley's janitor or what we now call the chief operating officer. So they, they were in town, and that, that sort of concept was, was, was absolutely key to the sustaining the institution, he felt. So um, he built wonderful buildings, and that's kind of part of what we are as an institution, these famous, beautiful buildings. Um, part of them actually go back to the, the, the medieval library of the university, which was, was ransacked and then redesigned and rebuilt by Sir Thomas and uh, Thomas James, the first librarian. And today we're, um, we still have that historic heart of the library, the kind of mothership, I call it. Um, but surrounding that, sort of unbelikely, connected are uh, about 30 other libraries, departmental and faculty libraries. This is the, um, the social science library. This is our business school library. Um, this is in the law library. So you, know, you get the sense that there's a, a variety of subjects which are supported by 
um, disciplinary focused libraries which are in the heart of their subject communities. Um, this one um, shows that we don't just collect books. This is our Latin American Center Library. Um, but they're sort of connected by a deep, rich research collection that we um, began in the 17th century. And again, sort of lots of people, if you conjure up an image of what the Bodleian Library is, it's kind of rows of leather-bound tomes. Um, but increasingly, our collection is actually stored off-site. So we um, had a bit of a crisis point in the early years of this um, century and found that our the kind of arteries of our library system were somewhat clogged and um, we had to unblock them by building an off-site storage facility and we did that, we opened it in 2010, has about 10 million collection items in it now and one of the things that it did was to free up the collections which had been tied to specific buildings and allowed us to deliver them by a, um, a fairly straightforward logistic system to a number of other sites, um, you know, all of our 30 libraries in, in Oxford, um, but also to provide a scan, a scanning service from the store so we can scan within the copyright law um, in, in the UK to your desktop. Um, one of the things we also did at the same time as building that off-site store was to reimagine um, one of our major buildings in the central Oxford, known as the New Bodleian. It's designed in the late 1930s by Giles Gilbert Scott. Um, not the most successful architectural um, establishment in a city full of beautiful buildings. Um, but the most polite thing anyone said of it is like a dinner jacket made of Harris tweed. So um, one of the things that we did, we were partly forced to was to completely renovate this building and although because of its listed status we had to retain the outside um, we we had to do some fundamental underpinnings partly to avoid this this is the um, the Moscow Academy of Social Sciences which unfortunately in 2014 burnt down for the want of um, a number of these sprinkler heads so very kind of simple um, uh, device to stop uh, the, the conflagration that all of us librarians kind of fear the most. So we, we renovated the building, um, took a lot of the collections that were very low use and moved them off-site to reuse the space inside cent the central Oxford for other um, purposes and mostly for people. So partly to bring the public into our building in ways in which uh, Sir Thomas Bodley would not have imagined, I think, in the early 17th century, but to really open up the library as a place which welcomes everyone. So it's the ground floor of that building is now freely accessible with um, uh, exhibition galleries um, and a cafe and um, an auditorium and all, all those other things which many libraries like your own um, take for granted but for Oxford for the Bodleian it was a kind of radical step and but it was um, a very successful one um, so as I said we have um, exhibition galleries we've brought um, some collections out which um, so this is a tapestry map woven in the late 16th century, which we didn't have a wall big enough to hang it on before. So we were able to use the building to show parts of our collection that we, we didn't have uh, the opportunity to do before. 
But the most fundamental aspect of it has been to open up the library to the citizens of Oxford. And um, the cafe has been absolutely critical in that as a kind of meeting place in the heart of the city, but as a point in which we as a library can provide an intersection between the great erudite scholarship of the university and a very broadly defined public. And that's a wonderful role that we can play for um, the university and for society in our city. And um, partly also it's given us an opportunity to um, engage new audiences, ones which we as a university library hadn't really addressed before. So this is a couple of years ago when the, the building was still quite new, we launched um, the national campaign for drawing known as the Big Draw um, in our building. This is Philip Pullman with um, Chris Riddell, the, the um, the children's laureate live drawing one of his stories on on a digital screen. Um, so the point of this was that it brought lots of young younger people who would not normally be admitted into the Bodleian Library. It's fair to say um, into that building. Um, and to begin a dialogue, a different kind of dialogue with a different audience. And again, not trying not to lose any of our erudition, any of our standards of scholarship, but to address um, different audiences. And this was the first time that that campaign was launched outside of a London institution. So again, that was um, important for us. At the heart, we're still what Sir Thomas Bodley would have recognised, a collecting institution. And... Um, much of our collecting now is of this kind of thing, electronic journals. Um, they are probably our most heavily used collection items. So probably about 20-odd um, million downloads of our ebook and e-journal content uh, a year. Um, but they sit alongside the more sort of famous heritage collections like our early um, medieval manuscripts. This is a 9th century um, Greek text of Euclid. Um, we have great oriental collections. Um, we gave ourselves a birthday present in 2002. Our 400th birthday was after a little shopping spree that my predecessor made um, for, of an Islamic uh, atlas. And we have these you know, wonderful medieval illuminated manuscripts, which again, um, the Bodleian is, is famous for, and we, we, we take very seriously. We have great music collections. This is part of the archive of the composer Mendelssohn. Um, we've, um, we have historic photographs and you know, the great um, graduates of the university. So J.R.R. Tolkien's archive for the most part resides in the Bodleian um, and including his own um, watercolour illustration for the dust jacket of the first edition of The Hobbit. And um, this is a page from the manuscripts of the Lord of the Rings um, with, again, his own, his own illustrations. And then some more kind of um, less familiar items. So we have a major collection of printed ephemera called the John Johnson Collection with wonderful um, trade posters and, of course, um, newspapers. Um, and also um, special collections, so archives, um, both personal and organisational archives are a major part of what we as a scholarly institution are serious about collecting. Um, in 2013, um, Oxfam gave us their archive. So this is a major collection, 10,000 boxes um, of, of paper materials, um, Oxford founded in 
uh, Oxfam was founded in Oxford as the Oxford Committee for Famine Relief um, during the darkest days of World War II, and um, obviously it's now a major multinational non-governmental organization. And the 10,000 boxes, because it's still an active organization, are now augmented by other forms of collection. So um, they put up their first website in 1996, and so we've been carefully trying to go back through their organizational records to capture their web, uh, their, their web presence from their own, um, uh, their own source code. And much of the acquisitions of ongoing material from Oxfam look like this. So this is a manuscript, um, ladies and gentlemen. Um, it's certainly not one that Sir Thomas Bodley would have recognized, or, or Thomas James, or, um, but it is a major source of new um, material for our collections. And um, the challenge that these kinds of collections pose for us as librarians and archivists today um, greatly complicate the process, the, the, the traditional craft of being a librarian. But at the heart, um, the twin challenges of preservation and access are exactly the same. And part of those you can see with the legacy digital materials that are now beginning to come in significant quantities into our um, institution. So this is part of the, um, the papers, inverted commas, of um, an important politician called Barbara Castle, Baroness Castle, who was an Oxford lass herself, um, left us. Um, I think about 500 boxes of paper, but also two Amstrad word processors. And unfortunately, she didn't leave us the passwords to um, access these devices, so our archivists had to hack um, these uh, devices to get access to them. But also, there were boxes of um, the kinds of storage media that have been um, somewhat forgotten. You know, m many of you in the audience will probably not have encountered some of these uh, devices, um, but they contain, towards the end of her life, she was actively using them, her secretary was act actively using them, she herself was very engaged with her own, writing her own uh, autobiography, but also in the rights of older people in society, and so she was still an active politician right up to the end of her life. So this material, this digital part of her archive, is just as relevant and important for the future as the, the, the paper. And at this point, I'd like to kind of go back to the history of our institution. And one of our famous readers was the poet A. E. Houseman, um, a famous pedant, um, but also a great classical scholar. And one of his um, quotes that I like the best was um, and a very obscure footnote to um, a review that he made of a German scholar's edition of Horace. And in the footnote, he um, made a wonderful quote, which was him spotting that the German scholar, of course famous for their erudition and their, um, their sort of rigorous discipline of going through source material, had missed a variant reading of one of Horace's odes in a Bodleian manuscript. And of course, Hausman, being the famous pedant, was delighted by this. Couldn't have been happier. And he wrote in the footnote, um, beware the arsenals of Nemesis. And the arsenals of Nemesis, he wrote, are to be found in the stacks of the Bodleian Library. And I love this kind of sense that 
um, the collections of a great research library contain um, these um, important facts, important knowledge that can trip people up if they um, are not painstaking enough to go through them. And so the question for me is, um, today, I think for the research, and our, the research library and archival community more generally, is um, how are we filling the arsenals of nemesis in our institutions today? What, um, it's not necessarily the medieval manuscripts recording lost um, versions of Horace, but it's um, the noughts and ones that contain um, different kinds of information, which I'll come to um, in a moment. So one of the ways, of course, that we and all of our sister institutions pretty much are engaging with the digital world um, today is through digitizing our analog collections. And we've been doing that um, since the early 1990s. We've um, taken it pretty seriously. We were one of the institutions which partnered with Google in the early days of their mass digitization project. And today we are still digitizing mostly our rarer and unique materials, manuscripts and um, archival collections for the most part. Um, and, but the challenge that having been a digitizing institution for a long time poses for us is um, the constant refreshment and um, reinvigoration of those um, digital um, interfaces. So this is one of the early um, websites that we put up to give access to not only Bodleian materials but also some of the college library collections. Um, it's now incredibly clunky. Um, the interface and the technology used to provide access for it was cutting edge at the time um, and in fact we gave access to high-resolution images freely for scholars to use at a time where most web browsers would crash as soon as you kind of downloaded one. And now it seems kind of pathetic when you go and look at it. So that constant sort of struggle to refresh the in interface and to continue to make the investment in the ways in which users access our increasingly large digital library is absolutely crucial. Um, and the, the standards that you use continue to um, evolve and it's important to keep up to date. This is our kind of current version. Um, this was our kind of predecessor after early manuscripts at Oxford. We then put up a piece of software called Luna and um, now we have um, uh, an interface called digital.bodlin which we're trying to um, um, close down some of those more boutique um, interfaces and bring them all together in a more standardized form with standardized metadata. Part of that is to give a more consistent experience to the researcher, to the user, but also it's about the cost to make it more sustainable, make it more affordable rather than keeping running multiple different softwares, um, um, multiple different versions uh, and so on. One of the aspects which I think is most important today is the collaborative element of this digital environment in which the great libraries and archives of the world operate in. So this is the library of Sixtus V in the papal apartments in 
um, the Vatican, um, and I show it because we have a wonderful project with the Vatican Library at the moment, which is a collaborative digitization initiative. We will finish this at the end of September, where we will have exceeded um, 1.5 million pages of early manuscripts in Greek and Hebrew and um, in Latin. Um, and I uh, encourage you to go and visit the interface. It's being supported by a wonderful philanthropic foundation who's, um, who shares our um, aim to open up our respective collections to as broad an audience, going back to Sir, Tom Sir Thomas Bodley's idea of the Republic of the Learned. And so, and again, interpreting that phrase as broadly as we possibly can. So some of what we are doing, I think you could put in the category of um, cultural repatriation. So we've been uh, a collecting institution for over 400 years. Over that course of time, we have acquired collections from all over the world, um, which now have great relevance to communities um, where those collections were first created. And so the one of the benefits of digitization is that we can um, make accessible important cultural artifacts from around the world back to those communities in which they were first created. And so this one is um, um, from a, uh, a Hindu sect called the, um, the Followers of the um, Swami Narayan. It's called the Shikshapatri. It is a sacred document. Um, just a few weeks ago, followers of the Swami Narayan came um, to worship the manuscript in the Bodleian Library. And we've, um, it's been important for us to make it available, as available as we can, both for people to walk in to, from, uh, into the library to, to see it in the flesh, as it were, or at least underneath glass, but also um, to have access to it digitally and for the transcriptions of the text to be made available according to different temple traditions. So that's one of the, the jobs that we've done with that. Part of the digital age is giving access to content in different ways. And one of the um, things that we've started to do more frequently are hackathons. So this is um, where we have kind of intensive days to give access to content that the library holds and to encourage different communities who are using different digital technologies in more intensive ways to come together, supported by library staff, to use content um, in all sorts of interesting ways. This is a day we did with the um, author Stephen Fry, who had just launched his um, autobiography, and he'd made, because he's a bit of a, um, uh, a digital person, he'd made the text of his autobiography available to us, and we were able to bring members of the local um, uh, kind of digital economy in Oxford into the library, together with computer scientists, uh, statisticians, maths people, English literature people who were literally hacking Stephen Fry's autobiography and doing all sorts of interesting things for a day, uh, fueled by Diet Coke um, and our Wi-Fi. And it was, you know, it was a fantastic sort of interdisciplinary experience seeing um, English literature master's students actually sitting down with computer scientists for the first time and um, seeing what can we do that's cool with Stephen Fry's autobiography and uh, Mr. Fry himself made a guest appearance halfway through the afternoon. Um, 
One of the other things that we've been doing, this was um, on um, Ada Lovelace Day. So Ada Lovelace Byron, the daughter of the poet, um, who is now credited as being one of the pioneering uh, figures in computer science um, and whose archive we have in the Bodleian. We now celebrate her birthday every year with a thing called Ada Lovelace Day. And one of the things we did last year was to bring um, young people in to learn the basics of coding into the library. So, um, you know, thinking of the library um, somewhat differently. But again, sort of going back to this idea of new audiences, um, one of it's it's an important topic for the University of Oxford to be more um, accessible, more inclusive of society, and to encourage students who might not think of applying to Oxford, who might be at schools, who do not have a tradition of sending their students to the university, to come to Oxford. And the library can play a part in this um, uh, opening up of the university. Um, so this is a, a school party that came to Oxford um, about 18 months ago from a school in inner London that had never sent a single student to Oxford. And so they spent a couple of days, um, they were all interested in politics. So they stayed in one of the colleges, they were looked after by the politics tutors in that college, and we brought them into the library to show them a political docu document. It's actually Magna Carta, this is one of the 12, uh, 17 engrossments of Magna Carta. And so they were able to get up close and personal with a historic document. And the, the feedback we had from the students was really, really incredible. Um, they were very um, enthused and inspired by the whole process. And a highlight was actually coming into the library and thinking, well, you know, they could be students here actually being able to access um, historic documents like that. Um, I mentioned at the beginning of my talk that preservation is still at very much at the heart of what the library is here on the planet to do, preserving knowledge. And um, part of um, that process is traditional conservation techniques. So our conservation department is an absolutely vital part of what we do. Um, um, this is of the hand of Robert Minty, one of our conservators who is conserving a 12th century Islamic manuscript on astronomy. Um, we have specialists in um, other forms of um, content. This, we have a specialist who just works on um, Chinese materials. This is a 17th century uh, Chinese document. We did a big project with a Chinese map from the late Ming uh, period, which was um, has turned out to be an incredible um, cultural treasure. It's uh, one of these things which I really hate calling them discoveries in great libraries because this thing had been known about for 350 years, but a scholar came into the library um, a few years ago. He was shown it by one of my colleagues, um, a special. Chinese specialist who said, you might be interested in this, it's really interesting, I think it could be really interesting for your research. And the scholar who was from uh, the, the University of Georgia was completely blown away by looking at a map um, drawn, painted um, in China in the um, late 16th or very early 17th century. It had been looked at many, many times before but no one had really noticed what you can't really see on this slide, unfortunately. But take it from me, um, our 
lines drawn all over it from um, points um, here on the South China coast all the way down to what is now Singapore, the Straits of Malacca, to uh, Java, to uh, Borneo and other parts of Indonesia, to the Philippines, up to Japan. This is Korea. You can just about make out the Great Wall of China. Um, here um, is um, instructions of how you get to the Straits of Hormuz. So this is a map written at a time where all the historians say China was closed, it had no engagement with the, the rest of the world, and all of the surviving maps of China just show mainland China, it just shows the interior of the country. And so here's a map right at this time, it's about five foot high, which show all of these trading links to all over um, what to them was the kind of known world. And so it's having the opportunity to conserve the manuscript has um, opened up an entirely new field of scholarship. So traditional paper conservation still has an absolutely vital role to play in what we do. And our colleagues took great, incredible pains overturning what had, at the start, looks like this um, laid on Western uh, a Western backing that was kind of changing its shape at a different rate to the Chinese paper and turning it into this something more sustainable that can survive hopefully another 350 years or more. And again, in the digital world, we're able to use new technologies to understand these documents more as part of the conservation and research process. So bringing hyperspectral imaging into the stacks of the Bodleian, working with physicists and chemists as part of the research teams is now becoming more and more normal as what, what we do in libraries. Um, I'm going to make a small digression now, which is to do something which isn't really very normal, and that's talk about pins. And so um, one of the surprises of institutions like mine um, is the depths of nerdy scholarship that our staff get up to. And it's worth celebrating this kind of nerdiness. Um, and so this is a pin. Um, it was um, part of a collection um, that came into the library, part of the manuscript that came into the library. And the scholars working on it um, needed to know more about the pin. And so they discovered that our predecessors had been keeping um, old pins for a long time. And they'd been taking these pins out of letters and other documents that were dated. And they were keeping a great collection of them. This is one of many, many sheets um, that were kept by staff of the Bodleian as they were cataloguing manuscript collections and recording the dates of the pins of the letters that they took out of them. So there's a collection of dated and datable pins. And um, this is important. Why, you know, what on earth is this man going on about old pins for? Well, it's important when we acquire things like uh, one of the manuscripts of Jane Austen. So this year's great Jane Austen uh, bicentenary. We acquired the manuscript of one of her unfinished novels called The Watsons, which contained pins. And for the scholars working on it, it was really important to know what was the date of the pins. So we were able to help the scholars understand that because of the nerdiness of our predecessors. And that's what the, the manuscript looks like. I encourage you to come to Oxford to our exhibition, uh, which Jane Austen that's on at the moment. So um, um, we're getting more scientific in our approach to things like conservation and preservation and into supporting researchers. Um, and part of the 
digital realm um, has been enabling us to use very different technologies as part of the extending our library services. So um, uh, 3D printing um, is now part and parcel of a number of research libraries portfolio of services and in Oxford um, in places like our physics department or our material science or engineering departments there are loads of 3D printers really fancy ones that cost you know hundreds of thousands of pounds but the important thing is that young people undergraduates don't normally get any time on them and so being able to put a small 3D printing lab in our science library has been important because it's given access to those technologies for people to play around and try things out that they wouldn't have had before. And one of the surprising results is you get a master's student working in our tropical medicine department who thinks who's working um, on a project in Sierra Leone with um, amputees. And he discovers that using our 3D printer, he can print prosthetic um, hands for about £35 a go. And so um, he's taken these out to uh, Sierra Leone as part of his project, working on tropical medicine, um, using the library's resources to help him innovate in the support of absolutely cutting-edge work, low-cost, replicable, um, easily transportable technologies um, to, to parts of the world which um, struggle to find solutions to uh, serious medical problems. Um, so going back to the Republic of the Learned, um, we're not just digitizing our collections, we're trying to take them out on the road to bring them to communities um, uh, as much as we can, often in collaboration with other institutions. So we've taken our Hebrew collection to the Jewish Museum in New York. Um, this is part of the Kafka archive, which we did a project with the Deutsche Literaturarchiv in uh, Stuttgart. This is um, some of our Islamic manuscripts in the European Parliament in Brussels for um, Arab Week a few years ago. Um, we took our Persian manuscripts to Melbourne to the State Library of Victoria. Um, and so we're seeing more and more that sharing our collections is an absolutely vital part of what a research library does. So it's part again of this going back to the concept of the Republic of the Learned um, interpreting that broadly, sharing our collections using as many techniques as we possibly can. And um, in our Western Library building, our new, um, uh, reno newly renovated building, we have um, screens, digital interactives sitting alongside our traditional collections um, which you can see in our in our exhibition spaces. And trying to share those with events and um, in different ways to enliven the sense of what a library is and to change the nature of how the public understand libraries. And there's too much still of the, the old uh, traditional perception of libraries being places where people stamp out books and hand them out over a counter and you, you borrow them. That's a very important part of society, but libraries are so much more than that. And using um, events, using exhibits, this was um, uh, an event to celebrate our 12 millionth book, which was um, a unique printed pamphlet um, by um, the poet Shelley, which he wrote while he was still an Oxford undergraduate. Um, 
the, te the, the, the stock of the poem was um, discovered um, by his dad, I think. Um, uh, he'd actually published it under a pseudonym, a gentleman of the University of Oxford. Um, it's a very radical poem raging against the injustices of um, the empire and complaining that it was ordinary people caught in the middle of global struggles between the superpowers of the early 19th century. And um, it was all in aid of uh, an Irish journalist called Peter Finity, who had written um, an article complaining about British behaviour um, in, uh, in, in a war, and he got thrown in jail. And Shelley was so outraged at this lack of um, respect for the freedom of um, the press that he wrote this, this pamphlet while still a 19-year-old, had it printed on the high street in Oxford, and unfortunately his tutor, or uh, we think, discovered it in the shop window, told his dad about it. His dad um, wrote to the shopkeeper, uh, the, the, the stationer who, who had printed it and had the, the stock destroyed. Except Shelley himself had taken one copy and um, had given it to his cousin, who's, uh, who's called, uh, I think the battery's going on this, um, but you can just see um, on the top right-hand corner is written the name Pilfold Medwin. Um, aren't many people called Pilfold anymore, thank goodness, but um, Pilfold Medwin had one of these um, uh, Brits who'd gone to Italy in the early 19th century and it had stayed in the family collect collection there um, ever since and then it was sold and uh, one of our donors kindly bought it for us as our 12 millionth book and we had um, a wonderful event to celebrate it but we also digitized it of course and put it online you can still uh, see it there um, so again the kind of the physical and the digital going hand in hand they're not competing against each other they're complementing each other in the way that we promote our role in society the way that we serve our user communities and the way that we operate as modern libraries one of the things that I've been doing um, recently is trying to reflect on um, the role of libraries in society and in thinking about that, partly it's about funding, it's about justifying our existence in a digital age, partly it's about um, just trying to re-establish our kind of founding principles and, and think about those. And so one of the things I've been thinking about is what would the world have been like if the Bodleian Library hadn't existed? And what were the things, what were the moments in... Um, cultural history and intellectual history that the Bodleian made a significant impact on. And so I've got a few slides here, if you'll just indulge me, about that. So um, I confess, as Bodleian's librarian, I'm trumpeting my own institution a bit here, so um, forgive me for that. But I think you could apply this just as much to the National Library of Ireland or to the other great libraries in this city. So this is... Um, Edmund Halley, the great um, astronomer, um, he was a, a, one of the civilian professors in Oxford, and he had a great relationship with one of my predecessors, John Hudson, who was the fifth or sixth librarian. And one of the things that he did was to, uh, Hudson this is, was to acquire um, important oriental manuscripts, one of which in Arabic contained the, one of the holy grails of science in the 17th century, which was the missing book of a book of Greek geometry by a Greek geometer called Apollonius of Perga. 
And so um, I think it's book seven had been missing in the Greek text, but the Arabs had copied it. It had survived in an Arabic manuscript. The Bodleian acquired the manuscript. My predecessor read it, discovered that this, this text was there, showed it to Edmund Halley, who got very excited, and who published it. Um, here, it, yes, it says um, um, uh, in seven books. Um, in Ox by Oxford University Press. So this publication became a very, very important, you know, a, a big news in the science community of Europe in the early Enlightenment, but it was one of the publications that made OUP a famous press and made Oxford internationally renowned. Fast forward a few decades in the 18th century, and one of the other um, early engrossments of Magna Carta, this is the 1217 copy from Gloucester, um, newly acquired in the early 1750s by the Bodleian, and William Blackstone, the great jurist, one of the most famous um, legal theorists uh, of the 18th century, made the arduous journey from All Souls College, takes about five minutes, um, to the Bodleian to see it newly acquired, just as he's writing his book on Magna Carta. So he's able to interrupt the flow of his scholarship to introduce um, the, the findings that in this particular copy. Um, and Blackstone's book on Magna Carta is read everywhere. It's read by Thomas Jefferson. It's read by the F French Enlightenment thinkers. And so it's part of that process of introducing new concepts in democracy um, in Europe and America at a time when... Um, these kind of important principles of the rule of law going back and uh, enshrined in Magna Carta are kind of rediscovered and reinterpreted um, anew. William Morris, um, here from the Kelmscott Chaucer, um, came into the Bodleian Library as an undergraduate with his friend Edward Byrne Jones to look at medieval manuscripts. And the result is it kind of you know blew his mind. He developed this new aesthetic infused by uh, the medieval world and changed the way that our curtain fabrics look forever. Um, the Oxford English Dictionary, you know, again, you know, a hugely important cultural phenomenon, could not have been written without the editors being um, right next door to the Bodleian Library and having access to the collections. Dorothy Hodgkin, one of the uh, Nobel Prize winner, the first um, uh, British woman to win a Nobel Prize, um, she was a great user of the Bodleian Science Library um, in the middle decades of the last century um, and uh, won her Nobel Prize for her discovery of the molecular structure of vitamin uh, B12. Um, and um, Jacques Derrida, um, great cultural theorist, um, came into the, was invited to give a lecture in Oxford, came into the Bodleian Library and found in our bookshop uh, a postcard from a medieval manuscript in our collection which has um, the roles of Plato and Socrates uh, bizarrely reversed. So normally it's uh, it's Socrates reading, looking over the shoulder of Plato, and um, somehow the scribe has transposed the two names. And Derrida was so taken by the kind of um, the the cultural confusion of this document reproduced on a postcard that he wrote an entire book um, called La Carte Postale, which is one of the famous books of uh, modern cultural theory. And then finally. Um, 
one of our readers is the set designer for Doctor Who. So, um, you know, it's nice to think that, again, a modern cultural phenomenon is inspired and fueled to some extent by access to the collections of the Bodleian. Um, so I'm, I promise I'm near the end. Um, one of the things, uh, one of the projects that we did um, uh, in early 2016 was a wonderful collaboration with the British Library and our colleagues at Trinity Dublin over um, commemorating the Easter Rising. We did um, a physical display, but also um, a digital uh, website collection around the Easter Rising. We had um, Daniel Mulhall, your wonderful um, uh, ambassador to the United Kingdom, come and give us a fabulous talk around that project. So I'm just going to talk a little bit now about um, extending um, the role of libraries um, in a digital age. And I'd like to go back for a second just to remind you of Magna Carta. So here's a document written in the early uh, 13th century which still has clauses that are of relevance in, say, the UN Declaration of Human Rights. It's kind of lifted exactly from, um, from uh, 1217. And we exist in a world today where... Um, we are surrounded by alternative facts and fake news. So here's, um, uh, of course, the famous images of uh, Obama's inauguration and Trump's inauguration, um, which generated this sense of all alternative facts. So, um, of course, Trump's inauguration was much busier. There were many, many more people there than at, at Obama's uh, inauguration. And so this is one of the um, alternative facts of our age. And we're finding this more frequently um, repeated, you know, this, this technique of um, subverting reality um, in the promotion of particular ideas or ideologies. And so um, the web is such an important platform for communicating ideas and uh, pos positions, politics, literature, culture, all sorts of things. But it is fundamentally um, fragile. And I think we continue to underestimate its fragility. And just a few little facts there around the fragility of, um, of the web. So. Um, libraries around the world, including the National Library of Ireland, Trinity, um, our own institution, are really trying very, very hard to address this problem. And um, we are working, as many libraries do, with the Internet Archive to archive websites around the world um, of particular relevance to our work, our historic collections. Um, and then we're also working with the British Library and the other legal deposit libraries, which includes uh, Trinity Dublin, um, to archive um, the web. So there is an open web archive, which is archived by uh, permission of website owners. Um, but there is also a legal deposit web archive, which in the UK um, is part of the legal deposit um, legislation um, as amended in 2013, which is uh, is not by permission but collected by law, collected by um, a robotic web harvest, which um, has over six billion websites um, in it. So it's a, an, a massive collection. It's under different access uh, regulations, which um, I won't bore you with um, just now. Um, 
But I think this slide, if you can just kind of get a sense of, um, this is, um, uh, my battery's going on the pointer, but um, you can get a sense um, from this of the fragility of the web. So you can see the proportion of the, as it gets darker, as we go back in time, you can see the number of websites, the number of URLs that are completely gone, um, that are shrouded in errors. Um, so in, in the recent few years, you're just about okay, but further back than that, the live web has so much fragility that so many websites are lost. And so the importance of capturing and keeping, preserving the, um, that record of human behavior um, has never been more important. I'm going to gloss over that website, uh, that slide, and um, uh, I, I think it's also worth noting that we are in an era where there are um, there is competition or there are commercial services that would like to think of themselves as competing with libraries and archives. So Dropbox, Apple, the iCloud, um, you know, all sort of offer services that um, regard themselves as preserving knowledge, but it's just really just storage. It's not preservation. These are two very different things um, as we're running out of time. So these are some screenshots from the Legal Deposit Web Archive that I was mentioning to you. So um, we had a project to capture websites of relevance to the EU referendum. And so here's, um, here's a few um, for you. Here's one which I particularly draw your attention to, the famous red bus that was driven around the United Kingdom um, to promote the Leave um, campaign. And of course it was taken down um, from the Leave campaign's website the day after um, the referendum because it was, um, that as the Leave campaigners admitted, uh, untrue. What they were, um, what they had put on the side of their bus, and so the role of the web in influencing people's behaviour on very absolutely fundamental issues like our political future, our political, our political present, and our political future is unbelievably strong, and we need to be preserving this information for the sake of society. It's an absolutely fundamental role of libraries and archives, I would argue, as one of the pillars of an open society, along with um, you know, uh, indep an independent judiciary, freely elected um, uh, parliaments, um, the freedom of the press, and ac open access to knowledge and the preservation of that knowledge. Without them, we are lost as uh, democratic societies, I believe, ladies and gentlemen. And I think the role of libraries and archives um, has never been as important for the health of society as it is today. That's all I have to say. Thank you very much for listening.